Amen. It's nice when we have theological songs. It makes my job a little bit easier. If you would, uh, get out your Bible since you're standing. Might as well take advantage of that. And turn with me to Ephesians 1, 11 to 23. Uh, just want to thank the worship team again for their selections and their service. Also want to say happy Mother's Day to all you mothers out there. We know that our society doesn't show a tremendous amount of appreciation for what you do, but we know that our God does. So thank you for your faithful service. So Ephesians 1, we're going to start verse 11 and go through 23. The sermon is going to be on verses 15 through 19, but this is going to give us a sense of where it fits in the letter. So Ephesians 1, starting verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard of the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your, your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance and in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the, his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is, is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You may be seated as we pray. Heavenly God, we thank you again for this privilege that we have, the privilege to freely gather, to freely read your word Lord, we thank you for the beauty and the majesty of your word and for the immensity of the blessings that are toward us in Christ. Would you empower me to preach your truth? Lord, would you give us eyes to see more clearly day by day the wealth that is ours in Christ? Amen. Now, one of the things we like to do on Mother's Day is to start a sermon with a reference to a guy who lost all of his children. So, that's not actually what we like to do, but we are going to do that today. So if we start in Job, in the first chapter, what we see is that he is blameless, that he is upright. He's not sinless, of course, but he is a mature and faithful believer. And if you're looking for an example of elders to study as we are, um, he's an example of an elder. So we see that from the very beginning, but he doesn't know everything he needs to know about God. And that becomes plain when after he's heard from God about God's majesty and power, 
He has to proclaim this in Job 42 and 5. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. So he perceives God more clearly now. He, he knows God's better. And our text today will help us to understand the importance of growing in our knowledge of God. So beginning with verse 15, we read, For this reason... Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints. Now, it's always important to understand the context. We preach verse by verse here to make sure that we don't take things out of context. But that's increasingly important when there are terms like therefore. Or in this, today's case, we have for this reason. And this encourages us to look backward so that we can understand what's about to happen. So here... Paul lets us know that all those things that he took such care to explain in verses 3 to 14, those are going to inform what he is about to relay to us. So we're going to do a little review to help us keep in mind what he thinks is the driving force behind the text that we'll look at today. So going back, we see that God has blessed us with every spiritual gift in Christ. And this is a simple phrase, and it's an enormous understatement, so Paul doesn't stop there. He keeps giving us more details. He tells us that Christ, that God chose us before the foundation of the world. The eternally existent God, the omniscient God, selected us before we had done anything good or bad. He did this fully knowing that even at our best, our righteousness would be filthy rags. He predestined us for adoption. Before, we were brought forth in iniquity. We were conceived in sin. We were by nature children of wrath, but he made us his children. And he did this by redeeming us. He bought us back. We who were slaves in sin could do nothing to pay the debt that we had incurred, but Christ paid the full debt on our behalf with his blood. So we are forgiven of our trespasses because of his grace, which washes over us in abundance. It saturates us. It cleanses us from all impurity. And this incredible good news, this gospel, is the result of the unified efforts of the triune God. We see that God the Father predetermined that we would be co-heirs with our brother and redeemer, Christ, and that that would be sealed by the Holy Spirit. And this is, of course, for the praise of his glory, for the praise of his glorious grace. So with this in mind, we're going to continue into the text, realizing that the reason for what Paul is about to tell us is the gospel that he's already told us about. So going on in verse 15, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. So Paul, as we know, is not in Ephesus. He hasn't been there for several years. So he's writing to people, some of which he, he may not even know. He's writing to them because of what he's heard. And what he's heard is they have faith in the Lord Jesus. Now, using the title Lord uh, infers that they understand that Christ is above all and he has a reign and rule over all things. And they seem to grasp that their redemption from slavery to sin has caused them to be slaves to righteousness. They are slaves to Christ. Now, in addition, in addition to this faith in Christ, we see that they exhibit a love toward the saints. 
In John 13 and 35, it says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So this indiscriminate love for the saints, this lack of favoritism within the body of believers bolsters the assessment that these are indeed the faithful people that he was referring to in the introduction of his letter. And at a glance, it can seem that the object of the faith and the object of the love are somehow disconnected. The faith is in Jesus, but the love is for the saints. By placing these two apparently disjointed concepts together, though, Paul is using this as a preamble. Because later he's going to describe our unity in Christ. He's going to describe our unity with Christ. He's going to drive home the point that no matter what your national origin is or your personal history is, we are in Christ. We are Christ's body. And so loving Christ's body is loving Christ. And we see an an example of that in Matthew 25 through 40. So Matthew 25, 40 says, And the king will answer to them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Going on into verse 16, we see, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now, reading this text, we can appreciate what seems like Paul commending these believers for their faith. And it can be an instance or an example of focusing on whatever is good, whatever is pure, whatever is holy, whatever is just, whatever is of good repute. When we consider, though, the glorious, gracious, redeeming gospel rationale that he described before verse 15, it seems that rather than merely appreciating their growth, he's exulting in what that growth means, what that fruit indicates. It means that these peoples who may be strangers to him are in the household of God. They are beneficiaries of all the grace and the peace and the love and the blessing and the forgiveness that he spent so much time laboring on in verses 3 through 14. And because of this, Paul responds as we ought to when we hear about believers who are flourishing, no matter where they are. He praises God. He thanks God for them without ceasing, understanding that the blessings that are bestowed on those believers, the blessings that are bestowed on any believers, should result in the praise and the glory of God. But he doesn't stop with rejoicing for God's incredible kindness. He, he prays for them as well. He could have been absorbed in his own struggles. You may remember that he was in prison at this time. He could have been indifferent to their plight because he hadn't seen them. He hadn't been there in many years. But instead, he prays faithfully for them, people he's never met. And in in so doing, he exemplifies a lesson that he's going to teach us later on in Ephesians 6. So in Ephesians 6, starting in verse 17 through 18, this is again when he's describing the armor of God. He says, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Now, often we look at putting on the whole armor of God as an individual pursuit. It's a personal spiritual discipline. 
in a sense, it is. It's how we prepare to stand firm, but it is also how we prepare to be a blessing to the body. Now, some of you may remember our brother Matt has described the scenario, which most of us don't like to think about, when you're on a plane and the oxygen mask falls down, you're, you're told to put that on yourself first in order that you can help other people. And this is what we see here. He says, prepare to stand firm. But that standing firm isn't just for you. That standing firm is for the body of Christ. And follow that up, follow that preparation up with being faithful and praying for the body of believers. And this prayer is it's for all the saints. It's not just for our local church. It's not just for people we know. It's for the universal church. It includes those who are far off, but who have nonetheless drawn near to Christ. And even if we are not in close proximity, we are still in the same body. And that's for Jew and Gentile alike. And that's for mature believer as well as the new convert. We are all in Christ. We are all his body. And as such, we are called to care and pray, remembering the truth of 1 Corinthians 12 and 26, which says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So Paul shows us how to do this. He sees that the Ephesian church is being honored. They are being blessed by God, and he rejoices at God's provisions and again, he prays for those, some of which he's never met. Now we come to the content of his prayer. So we look at verse 17. It says, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So Paul prays that they know God. But the knowledge that he prays for is not just a collection of facts, because we see in Scripture that there are a variety of warnings against people who are just collecting facts. In 2 Timothy verse three, sorry, chapter 3, verse 6 through 8, it says, For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning but never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Just as Jans and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. And in Romans 1, verses 18 through 21, we see the familiar warning that, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his internal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So again, the prayer that he is praying is not for mental assent. It's not so that they understand interesting tidbits of information. It's also, though, not in this case, a request for salvation. So we know in, in John 17 and 3, John 17 and 3 says, and this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. 
But we know from verse 1, from the introduction of this letter, that it's written to the saints, those who are faithful in Christ. And he just spent verses 15 and 16 praising God that the recipients of the letter are demonstrating saving faith. So we understand that they are actually already in Christ. They have eternal life. They already have the internal inheritance that he's spent so much time describing. This prayer is instead that God would give these believers an enhanced knowledge of himself. That they would, by wisdom and revelation, know him better. That they would have an increasingly intimate and personal and relational knowledge with him. And that they would know him in a manner that's similar to the way Adam knew his wife, Eve. So if we look at Ephesians 5 and 31, we see that the man and the wife become one, one flesh. And if we continue to verse 32, we understand that that one flesh marital mystery is a profound thing that refers to Christ in the church. So Christ and his bride, Christ and his body, the saints are in a relationship that parallels that between a husband and a wife. So Paul wants them to have this deep personal relationship with Christ. And just as married couples tend to learn more about each other, some of the stuff they don't necessarily like, but they do learn more about each other year in and year out, he wants this relationship to be one that continues to grow in personal knowledge of God. He wants to improve their grasp of the beauty of the gospel and of God's love for them. And then we see a similar plea elsewhere in Ephesians. So if we look at Ephesians chapter 3, in Ephesians 3 and 14 through 19, we see him saying a similar plea uh, for them there. So it says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So his aim is that they comprehend this boundless love, that they be filled with the fullness of God. And there's a sense of continual filling with the fullness of God. And he wants them to have a mature understanding of the riches that are afforded them in Christ. So that they would be saturated with an appreciation for the hope that they have and the glorious inheritance that is theirs. So in the beginning, he labored with his words to describe uh, the awesome, unimaginable blessings that are ours in Christ. And now he's describing his diligence in prayer so that these believers and believers in general would understand the God from whom all those blessings flow. And even the way that the prayer is composed, it helps us to understand God better. So he identifies God as God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, highlighting his dominion over all things. Pointing out that he is the father of glory tells us that he is the source of glory. So power and honor and authority are all God's to give. And so when he asks for wisdom, again, he points to the fact that wisdom and revelation are gifts that come from God, but also 
we know that God is generous to give them. We see in James 1.5, it says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. And from our reading earlier today in 1 Corinthians, we understand that the things of God are revealed to us only through the Spirit of God. Now, now that we're talking about the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, we come into one of those areas where there's discrepancies between translations. So the Greek word for spirit is pneuma. And in this verse, it doesn't have an article. The Greek text doesn't say a spirit or the spirit. It, it just says spirit. Now, occasionally when we are preparing for a sermon or when we were preaching, we come into these really challenging theological issues. If you were here last week, you probably noticed our brother Matt struggled to re- realize or understand, is there an I in team? And so today we have a similar struggle. We have to understand, is this the spirit or a spirit? So the ESV translates this verse, the spirit of wisdom. It refers to the Holy Spirit. And proponents of this translation say that that understanding is consistent with what we just saw, which is that God is the source of wisdom. The Holy Spirit is the source of understanding. And that's driven home further by Isaiah 11, 2, where it says, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of God. And again, from our reading in 1 Corinthians 2, 10 instructs us that no one understands without the spirit. So it makes sense that this would be referencing the Holy Spirit. Additionally, Referencing the Holy Spirit in this verse continues the triune language that we've seen throughout. So throughout the introduction of the letter, there is the Father, there's the Son, there's the Holy Spirit. The Father predestined us for adoption with, through Christ the Son, guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. So this would be a continuation of that theme. Now, the NASB, on the other hand, the, the, the Bible that Sean reads, um, the NSB, on the other hand, renders it a spirit. This is not the Holy Spirit. Those supporting this interpretation point to the fact that Paul is praying for believers. They already have the Holy Spirit. So there's no expectation or no need that they would be given that again. Additionally, since they also already have a human spirit, they think that the best way to understand this is either Paul is praying that they be given an aptitude or an attitude of wisdom, or that their human spirit is transformed by the Holy Spirit. Now, regardless of which way you go on here, what is clear, again, is that this is a gift of God that is only possible through his Holy Spirit. Now, the next verse, we're going to get into 18 and 19. This is going to outline the specific areas that Paul is praying for, for increased knowledge. So, for verse 18 and 19, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. So he asks that the eyes of their hearts are enlightened. Now we know that the heart 
is the seat of thoughts and emotions and will. It's where our desires and our values live. And the focus here reinforces the fact that, again, Paul is not asking that they have mental knowledge, that they have intellectual proficiency. He prays that they would have this immersive, complete understanding of the sentiment that we see in Romans 11, 33, that they would be like Paul in this. And he says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. And there are three ways that he thinks God should reveal, three ways that he is praying that God would reveal himself so that they would understand this more clearly. He prays that they would understand the hope to which they are called, the riches of his glorious inheritance, and the immeasurable greatness of his power that is at work toward them to believe. Now, today, when we think of hope, it's kind of like an optimistic feeling. It's, it's a wish. It's kind of like when we hope that gas prices will fall, or we hope that we'll, we'll win the lottery. And sadly, both of those have the same probability. But the confidence that we have in Christ is not like that. It's not a feeling, but a confident trust that something that we don't see will actually occur. Now, a few years back, I read a book. Yes, I, I used to read books a few years back, and it's on trust. And it's a secular book, but I think it gives us some insight into our confidence in Christ. And so the author of the book points out that there are actually two components to trust. One is character, and the other is capability. The character piece is that the person has to actually have the desire or the faithfulness to do what they're being asked to. And the capability piece is they have to actually have the ability to do it. Like, I can trust my son to drive in terms of his, his desire to do it, but that would be an expensive mistrust. So we have to make sure that the character and the capability are there. So God's character, on the other hand, is gracious and generous. And he has chosen us before the beginning of time that we would be holy with him. And he's capable because he, we know that he can and does do all things according to the counsel of his will. So our hope is not like winning the, the, the lottery because in Christ, we have an infinitely trustworthy guarantee that our hope will be seen. And that's driven home in our psalm reading. If we look at Psalms 111, verses 7 through 8, it says, The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. So, the gas prices and the lottery are just aspirations, but these things, again, are certain expectations. And Paul goes on to, to describe the contents or the outcomes of this certain expectation, of this hope that we've been called to. And so scripture elsewhere tells us what this calling to is, what this hope we've been called to. If we look at 1 Corinthians 1.9, it says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. 1 Timothy 6.12 says, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you have made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. 
1 Thessalonians 2.12 says, We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into, your, into his own kingdom and glory. And 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So he calls us to a hope, and this hope is a call to fellowship with Christ. It is a call to eternal life. It is a call to be in his kingdom and his glory, and it is a call out of darkness into his marvelous light. And again, we know that he who calls us is faithful. He will surely do it. So our hope is sure. In addition to this certain hope that we have, Paul wants them to be uniquely acquainted with the riches that we have of the glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, our brother Matt looked at this extensively last week, so I won't do that very much. But there are, I do want a couple, I want to touch on a couple of things. This is a guaranteed behest from the Father of glory that will never decrease in value, and it's the only inheritance that we receive after we die. So 1 Peter 1, 3 through 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So we know that all earthly riches, all earthly inheritances will pass away. But this one will never fail because it is eternal and because it is in heaven. Now, finally, Paul wants us to know the immeasurable greatness of the power that is at work towards us who believes. And he describes this in the next four verses. So I'm going to start a little bit back in 19 and read through Ephesians 1, 20 through 23. Starting verse 19, it says, According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And we're going to look at that more in depth next week, but it's good to see the power that Paul is referencing in verse 19. And this is not just any example of God's immeasurable power. We can think of the creation where God made everything out of nothing, and we, we could see that that's an amazing demonstration of God's power. But there are a couple of words that are important in the verse that says power toward us. Paul points out the one demonstration of God's power that is uniquely for those who are believers. The God, the Lord Jesus Christ, demonstrates his power over death in the grave, over all authorities and the powers on the world by raising Christ from the dead. And this resurrection power is only for those who believe but this resurrection power is essential for salvation because without this, we wouldn't have hope. We wouldn't have a certain hope. We see in 1 Corinthians 15 and 17, it says, 
And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. But because of this power, our faith is not futile. We are not still in our sins. Because of this power that works on our behalf, we who were dead in our trespasses and sins were raised to be with Christ. We have a sure hope and an eternal glory because of this power. So Paul prays that they would know God better, that they would understand their calling, that they would see the benefits of being co-heirs with Christ, and that they would fathom this great might that is working uniquely on their behalf. Now, if you would turn or swipe in your Bibles to 2 Kings 6 chapter, it's going to be verses 8 through 17. So when we look at 2 Kings 6, verse 8 through 17, we're going to see a, a somewhat similar or familiar story that's going to give us kind of an example of God's revelation. So 2 Kings chapter 6, starting in verse 8. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, beware that you do not pass this place for the Syrians are going, to be, are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came in that night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So when we read this, we, we see that the situation hasn't changed. There's still an army against uh, Elisha. We see that there's this massive group of people, and we also understand that, that God's power was already at work on their behalf. But one thing that did change was the servant's ability to see that power at work on his behalf. So you can imagine the, the change in intent, the change in focus, the change in thought that happened when, when at first all he could see was this army that was against him. And then when God gave him this revelation of this power that was in work because or on his behalf, that would change his fear to courage. That would change his lethargy and his concern. And it's this kind of change, this kind of switch that Paul is praying for all believers, that we would see this power, that we would see these blessings at work on our behalf.
So in closing, we know that God's works should result in praise. So our greater, more personal knowledge of God should result in the praise of his his glorious grace. And it should affect our walk, our daily lives. There was a saying uh, when I was growing up that that person is so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. And this was to describe people who perhaps they prayed a lot, perhaps they read the Bible a lot, they studied, they meditated, they knew God's word, and they knew his doctrine, but they couldn't connect that with an ability to faithfully serve. Now, that's what, not what Paul is talking about. Paul is not promoting this approach. He is praying that these saints would be so focused on God, on things above, that they'd be so intimate with God, that they would be so mature in their faith that it would enable them to live lives that are worthy of their calling. He wants husbands to be so enamored with the love that Christ has for his church that they use that as a pattern for how they live with and love their wives. He wants wives to remember and see and understand that just like the chariots of fire were surrounding the mountains and hilltops, he is still sovereign over all things so that they can be encouraged as they submit to their husbands. And he wants all of us to commune with God the Father who has given us this glorious inheritance, this eternal inheritance so that we see being patient and bearing with one another is nothing. May God give us grace to do just that. Now, we saw that the verse said, this power that is toward us. If you are not in Christ, that resurrection power is not toward you. If you have not repented of your sin, the glorious gospel that he described in such great detail for chapters three through 14, has nothing to do with you. You are still in your sins. You are still without hope. You're an object of God's wrath. So we implore you, repent and believe in Christ and know his glorious grace. We pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your truth. We pray for a renewed vision of your greatness and of your majesty. Would you help us to see your glory? Would you enlighten the eyes of our hearts? Lord, help us to walk faithfully in the newness of life. Lord, that is made possible only because of your love and your power towards us. And Lord, would you also give us grace to be faithful in prayer to the church here and abroad that your kingdom would indeed come and your will would be done. In Jesus' name.